Well, I encourage you now to turn in your Bibles as we look to the Word of God in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have been going through this book and we're coming now to the last chapter. The last chapter, and I know that last week we took a large section of text. Uh, This week we will be just taking four verses as we take each portion, uh, thought by thought or section by section. Paul switches gears here and he gives them some instruction. After last week we learned about how we will have a body that is glorified. This week we will be looking at Paul's instruction regarding a collection of offering which provides for us a model by which we can follow when it comes to receiving offering gifts to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. It reads, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside And save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, as we have sung earlier, Our desire, O Father, is to hear from you. So speak, O Lord, as we come before your holy word and make our hearts soft, teachable for your kingdom and your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you recognize the name Henry Ford. He's an American industrialist. Very wealthy billionaire. Once he was asked to give a donation for the construction of a new medical facility. And so he listened to the fundraiser and he pledged to donate $5,000. And that was a lot of money back then. The next day in the newspaper, the headlines read... Henry Ford contributes $50,000 to the local hospital... Well, he was upset, so he called immediately to complain to the fundraiser and to the misunderstanding. And they apologized profusely and said, well, they'd print a retraction in the paper. The retraction would read, Henry Ford reduces his donation by (laughs) $45,000. But he realized that the poor publicity, it would just not sound good. It would be like... Maybe Warren Buffett this past week, they retracted, he donates one million rather than five billion to B of A. So he said, well, I will agree to contribute $50,000 in return for the following. That at the entrance of the hospital, they would print this biblical passage. I came among you and you took me in. Unquote. (laughs) That's how it feels sometimes when people... When it comes to giving, giving a little is fine. If others know what we give, well, maybe we feel like giving more because they may know we don't want to look cheap. We don't want to look too thrifty. When it comes to giving to God, the average American churchgoer, though, 
gives a paltry percentage of 2.7% of their income in surveys. The instruction, though, when it comes to the subject of giving is clear. As 2 Corinthians 9, 6-9 says, Now I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The subject of giving and the subject of offering is what Paul addresses here as he addresses this subject in, to the Corinthian church. And by way of introduction, he begins in verse 1, saying, Now for the collection for the saints, as I directed the church in Galatia, so do you also. When the church first began back in the book of Acts, early on in the history of the church, Acts 4.34, it tells us, There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as they had need. In the early days of the church, when somebody had a need, people who had things would sell them and they would, they would give their money into a pool and they would be, be, be distributed to the poor by the Christians who were in charge of the church. That changed over time, though. In Acts chapter 8, at the stoning of Stephen, the persecution of the church began to intensify and Christians would lose their possessions. They would be evicted from their homes. They would lose their livelihood, lose their businesses. Some would be imprisoned. And ultimately, these individuals would join the ranks of the poor. Within a decade, that area experienced a famine, a severe famine. So from chapter 4, in which... No one had any need to chapter 8 in which they were persecuted. In Acts chapter 11, there was a famine and the ranks of the needy swelled. And Paul began on his missionary journey to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem from Macedonia. As he says there, I directed the churches of Galatia. And in Romans 15, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And this was significant. This was a significant gesture. Why? Because the churches in Macedonia, Achaia, and Galatia, and in Corinth were predominantly Gentile. Predominantly Gentile. And do you remember when the church first began, the, the mindset of the Jew, of what happens to all of these people who are not Jews, who do not know Christ? This is the gospel also for them. There was prejudice. There was a kind of exclusivity that the Jew would see for the Gentile then to give an offering to help the poor who were in Jerusalem. The Jewish church would bridge some of those prejudices that they were one in solidarity as a church. Didn't matter if they were poor. It didn't matter what cultural background they came from. It didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. The Gentile church would give and it would show in gratitude that the gospel first came to the Jews. It would communicate all of these things. Now, there are many impoverished people in Jerusalem, the surrounding area, but the collection was for the saints, for the saints. And the example here that is given is significant because there needs to be a priority, I believe, in our giving. The priority 
in our giving. It is to be for the needs of God's people, God's church, God's interests are to be a priority. Galatians 6.10 tells us, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It doesn't say to ignore the poor in general. It doesn't say to ignore somebody who is not a Christian. We learn that from the book of Luke when we look in Luke 10 of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here is a, uh, an individual who is beat up by the side of the road. The Samaritan comes along. It doesn't matter who they are. We're to help them. But especially to those who are of the household of faith. When given options, there's to be a priority, a precedent. You know, it seems in recent years and in recent days, there have been more natural disasters than ever. Tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and drought and perhaps the most publicized, the humanitarian crisis of the famine in East Africa in which millions of people are dying simply because they do not have food. In addition, just last week, there was a survey I saw in the world news in the evening, a statistic that publicized that one in four, one in four children in the U.S. live in families that struggle to put food on the table. There are always needs. There are good needs to give to. It is right and it is good to give to help others. And that is what we are commanded to do while we have the opportunity to give. Do good to all people. Do good to all people. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to be people who give. John MacArthur writes, One of the surest signs of a recreated person, a saved and redeemed person, is willingness to give. The Athenian statesman Aristides wrote the following of Christians in the second century. He wrote, quote, They walk in humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow, and they grieve not the orphan. He that hath distributeth liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof, and they rejoice over him as if he were their brother. For they call themselves brethren. Not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But when one of the poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, and he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is in prison or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessity, they will fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with his necessary food. Christians are to be givers. For 1 John 3.17 tells us, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The command is clear. Christians are to be givers. Christians are to be generous. Christians are to give to those who need, and especially to those 
who are in the household of faith. But how do we give? How do we give? Paul answers some of these questions as he gives the Corinthians instruction for how they are to give. The first thing in verse 2 that he says, implication being, it is part of their worship. It is a part of their worship. As an act of worship, they are to give. On the first day, on the first day, when they gathered for worship, they gathered on the first day. They didn't call it Sunday. Those names came later. They had first day, second day, seventh day was the Sabbath on Saturday. The first day of the week, we worship on the first day. Christians worship on the first day. Because that is the day when Christ arose from the dead. And the Christians began to gather on the first day to worship God as a congregation. And that pattern has followed to today. Believers, when they gathered, were to collect an offering as a part of their worship. Even in the Old Testament, when you came to God, before the church even began, when you came to God, you brought an offering. Whether it was a grain offering, whether it was a lamb offering, whether it was some type of offering, you came to worship in order to give. And that is so counterintuitive to the church today. Today, in our consumer-oriented society, people come to get all sorts of things. Come to get, not to give. And they might go to church and say, I didn't, I didn't get anything out of that. Worship is about giving and receiving. It is about being blessed and being a blessing. If we come to church, we come to give. But if we don't have that mindset and we don't prepare to come to worship and we're exhausted because we spent the night late at night and we're filled with anxiety, our mind is not clear and we're not prepared. We don't we're not prepared to come to give. We are not prepared to come to give him praises because our heart is far away. We're not prepared to listen because we're tired. We're not prepared to give because we haven't thought about it. Worship is about giving as well as receiving. As I shared many times with people in the Old Testament, I seriously doubt that the man who held the lamb in his arms would come to the altar and the priest would slay the lamb as a sacrifice, walked away and said, boy, I didn't get anything out of that. Worship is about bringing ourselves to God and God wants us to be a living sacrifice. To give of our praises, to give of our service, our ministry is an offering to God and the things that God has given to us. It is a part of worship. We are blessed by receiving from God and we're blessed by giving as well. Secondly, not only is it a part of worship, it is to be regular. It says every week. Paul's instruction is every week. Now, I don't necessarily believe that in a rigid application that every single week you've got to put something in. I believe the principle is that when you receive, we give. If God has given to us a job and that job pays us every week, well, we give out of that every week. If we have something that pays us every month, we give out of that. If we receive during that month something special, some bonus or dividend or whatever it might be, we give of the Lord at the time that we receive. When God grants to us His gifts, we are to give back to the Lord. I remember many years ago, and I'm not privy 
to what people give here that's taken care of by a committee, a treasurer, and all of that. And I'm separated. The pastoral staff is separated from that. But sometimes there are some occasions, and I remember this story because there were many years ago I knew of a family who had moved away. I moved, they had moved away because of employment. Years later, they come back and visit. And they present to the church a huge check. It was an insurance settlement. And realizing that this insurance settlement was a gift from the Lord, they chose to give some to us, to give some to the church that they were attending, to give back to the Lord. Whatever it was that God gave, they gave back. And the idea behind this is it is regular. It is regular as we receive regularly from the Lord. It's not haphazard. It's not at the end of the year so I can maximize my taxes. It's to be regular. The sentiment would perhaps liken it to be as if you were to go to somebody's home. When you go to somebody's home and let's say you go and they invite you over every other week and you go over there for dinner. It's a, it's a, it's a polite thing to do, to bring something. When you're invited over, you bring something small or big. You give a gift to the host. You don't say, well, it's, it's December 31st. I'm coming over for dinner and bringing them 12 cases of soda, 10 cakes and a bunch of stuffed animals for all the times in the year that you didn't bring anything. Regularly, not just when I feel led to or when I'm in the worship service or when I'm not serving in some ministry or when the pastor talks about it. Regular giving is an act of worship. It is to be regular and consistent. Thirdly, each one of you, it is to be by everyone, by everyone. And the implication, of course, is by everyone who received from the Lord. Now, again, it's to be done by everyone who has something to give. So if your child or your relative or your friend wants to give, don't prohibit them. Don't prevent them. Of course, this is a reference, again, to someone who has received. It's good. It's good to begin teaching children at a very young age to give. It's good. We teach our children to share, don't we? To share, to give what they have to others. You don't want to raise a child who is selfish or who is self-seeking. You want them to be blessed and to know, as Acts 20:35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When they begin to receive monetary gifts, they might not have a job. When they receive monetary gifts, it's good to teach them. That is a gift from the Lord to you. Maybe consider giving some back to the Lord. And then when they get older, they get their first job. Teach them to realize, you know what? That job is given to you from the Lord. That paycheck is from the Lord. And the Lord should receive something from that. It is good and right for each person to give something that they've received from the Lord. It is good to have that pattern that they have something to give to the Lord. Fourthly, it's not just an act of worship. It's not just regular. It is not just to be done by all, but it is to be planned. Put aside, verse 2 says, put aside. The Corinthians were to put aside. It was to be apportioned out, to be determined beforehand. Do you know in the Old Testament they commanded that people were to give of their first fruits? 
That was the first of all the crop or the first of the vine or the first of the harvest. And it was the best. And when the the harvest began to come in, they would gather the first portion. You know, the first portion. They gave the best to God. And what it communicated was, I trust God that God will bring the rest of the harvest in. I trust God that if he's given this, the rest of the fruit will be like it. I trust God and I believe this is from the hand of God. It was acknowledged that it was God who gave that harvest. Today, people often give what's left over. What they have left rather than the first portion. Someone wrote a poem that read... Leftovers are such humble things we would not serve to a guest. And yet, we serve them to our Lord, who deserves the very best. We give to Him leftover time, stray minutes here and there. Leftover cash we give to Him, such few coins as we can spare. We give our youth unto the world, to hatred, lust, and strife. And then in declining years, we give to Him the remnant of our life. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like you? Do you give what's left over? Do we spend ourselves into debt and then give to God what's left over? Do we have time and energy for anything that's fun, but when it comes to serving God, we say we're too busy? We think of ourselves, I'll serve God in the future, when I have more time, when I make more money. Do we give to God our leftovers? Some of you remember a man named Paul Harvey. He was a radio commentator. A number of years ago, he shared a true story about a woman. A woman who had a frozen Thanksgiving turkey. And you know, Butterball Turkey Company, they, they set up this telephone line where you can call in to ask questions on how to cook your turkey, you know. So she calls in. She calls in to inquire about how to cook her turkey. Because it's been sitting at the bottom of our freezer for 23 years. That's 23 years, not 23 days. The Butterball representative told her, well, that turkey would probably be safe to eat if the freezer temperature had been kept below zero for the entire 23 years. But they warned her that even if the turkey were safe to eat, the flavor would probably have deteriorated to such a degree she wouldn't recommend eating it. To which the lady said, That's what I thought. We'll give the turkey to our church. That's how people think. They give the things that they themselves wouldn't want. They give it to God. I don't know if you've heard, but I've heard stories of missionaries who go off onto the field. They receive a nice box full of outdated clothes that are no longer in style, that have holes in them. And they need to somehow graciously get themselves to write a nice thank you note back to the giver. We give to God often what we don't want, the leftovers. But giving was never meant to be haphazard, never meant to be an afterthought, never to be the pocket change that was the last, the worst. For Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 tells us, Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So how should this be done? Set aside a plan before you come to worship. Saturday night, decide. Or every week, decide. Or come before the Lord and ask Him what you should give. 
If you're married, you should plan together. Whatever it is, it should be planned beforehand. I remember working alongside of a youth worker when I was in California and we served in the youth ministry together many years ago and they had a good plan. They had a certain percentage of their income that they would give as regular offering. And then they set aside another portion, another portion out of every, every income that they would have. And they would use that portion for whatever ministry concerns came up. They would save that up. It would be to the Lord. So when somebody asked for a, a help for a missions trip, they would have funds to give out of that. When somebody had a particular need, God brought along something, they would have some opportunity to give to that. They would have an opportunity because they set aside something on top of what they gave to the Lord. So let me suggest that you pray and you consider whatever plan it is so that you might be able to give intentionally, regularly. God will cause it to multiply. Next, it is to save. It is to save. And this is saving through the church. I realize that the English kind of communicates it maybe as personal saving along the side. But the word save is from the word which we get the word thesaurus. It means a treasury of words. But the word itself means to save. It means a treasury or collection. And in ancient Greek culture, the temples, the synagogues, the church, they would be the repositories, not only of the offerings that were received, but they would act as the local bank. You would earn your money and perhaps you might give some to the local synagogue if you were a Jew and you would also make a deposit and they would save that for you. They would save that for you. So I believe that the proper understanding here is that it would be saving through the local church. After all, another reason is that he says, when I come, I don't want to have to have a collection be made. And if everybody was saving on their own, there would not need to be a, uh, there would need to be a collection. One implication of a local body saving is that they have a fiduciary responsibility To those who give. They're not to make irrational or unnecessary risks with the money that they have been entrusted with. They are to save it, to use it for the things of the Lord, to invest it wisely, not be buying into the latest and greatest snake oil. I remember a local church here in the area. During the boom times, they invested heavily in the stock market. They invested so heavily and their riches went up with the market. Three years ago, their riches went down with the market. And sad to say, their hopes and dreams of buying a church building faded with the market because they did not save carefully or wisely. Next, not only is our giving to be an act of worship, not only to be regular, not only to include others or everyone, not only to be planned or saving, it is to be according to God's blessings. According to God's blessings. As he may prosper. Every person, you see, is at a different economic level. It's not really about the amount. Some have very little. Some have much. Some prosper through gifts. Others prosper through inheritance. Others prosper through being employed. Others prosper through investments. However God gives to you, we give back to God. The amount, as I mentioned, is not the issue. Remember in Mark chapter 12, 42 to 44, there is Jesus and he is sitting across from the temple opposite the treasury. 
What happens? He begins observing, it says, how the people were putting money into the treasury. And there were wealthy people who would come and with a big show, put in a lot of money into the treasury. And then in verse 42, a poor widow, a poor widow comes in and she puts in two small copper coins, which amounted to just a cent. So he calls his disciples together and he says to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owed, all she had to live on. One can be poor. One can be poor in God's eyes and yet give more than those who are rich. Not be exempt. Poverty doesn't exempt one from giving. Paul spoke of generous giving of the Gentiles in 2 Corinthians. He says of the Gentiles who gave, In a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. As I read to you in the beginning, Aristides would write, If there was a man who didn't have enough food to eat, other believers would fast and not eat for two or three days so that that individual would have food to eat. Many people have much more wealth than they need. Arthur Brooks posts in Portfolio.com entitled The Poor Give More details and discusses the widely substantiated phenomenon that the rich give more money on the whole but they're far less generous than poor individuals when giving is considered as a percentage of income. He writes, Americans at the bottom of the income distribution pyramid are the country's biggest givers per capita. The 2000 Social Capital Community Benchmark Survey showed that households with incomes below $20,000 gave a higher percentage of their earnings to charity than did any other income group, 4.6% on average. As income increased, the percentage giving declined. Households earning between 50000 and 100000 donated 2.5% or less. Only at high income levels did it go up. 100000 or more, the number was 3.1%. Still far beyond those who earn less than 20000 a year. That's among the U.S., among American churchgoers, Christianity Today did a survey which Christians only would give less than two, around 2.7%. God's instruction for us is that we give according to the proportion of God's blessing. God grants to us more, we are able to give more. Our giving is to be on the rise. When God grants to us some dividend, bonus, or whatever it might be, our gratitude is expressed to God. Give. Peter Marshall said, Give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. I've been asked, well, what if I have debt? What if I have debt? God wants me to be debt free, doesn't he? Should I give? Should I give if I have debt I need to pay off? Well, obviously God doesn't want us to withhold giving if we have debt. Many people have 30-year mortgages. Does that mean that for the next 30 years we don't give? 
No. My answer to that question is, pay off our debts. Pay off your debts. Pay them off in priority order. And whom are we most indebted to? God. Pay God first. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, Don't you forget, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth. Who is giving you the power to make wealth? Who is the one who allows you to have opportunities to work? You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth. We have a job because God grants to us a job. We have income because it is from God. Who gave us the opportunity for education, perhaps? Who gave us the strength? Who gave us the mind? Who gives us health? Who gives us the abilities? God. And we are indebted, first of all, to God. But probably part of the debt problem among Americans is, frankly, because of the sin of greed and living beyond one's means. People fall into the belief that says, well, what I can afford is not what I have in the bank. What I can afford is, can I make the payments on it every month? That's not right. What we can afford is what we have to pay. We can't say, well, I've got car loans and mortgage and I've got medical debts and credit card debts and debts for a boat and debt for a private debt, debt for a large electronic goods or whatever it may be. So I can't give. Sometimes debt comes about because of tragedy or unexpected circumstances. But many times it's because of the lure of materialism or the standard of living. People overspend or in bondage to debt. According to generousgiving.org, 40% of church members say they overspend monthly. And also 40% of church members pay more than $2,000 a year in interest, not including their mortgage. 33% of U.S. born-again Christians say it is impossible for them to get ahead in life because of their financial debt they have incurred. And about 80 million families in the U.S., Say they're in financial trouble after 50 years of unparalleled prosperity. Pay off your debt and give to God to whom we are indebted. Next, not only is it an act of worship, giving is regular, giving is inclusive of everyone, giving is to be planned, giving is saved, and giving is to be according to God's blessing, but it is also for future needs. It is for the future. For the future. When Paul arrived, he wanted there to be no preparation needed, no collection that would need to be made. Paul here wanted to be able to pick it up in gratitude to God, planning and saving so that the church would have more than enough to supply for the needs of the poor, so that the church would be well prepared. In other words, if it is planned, if it is regular, it isn't dependent upon the church's need. One doesn't say, oh, I'll only give if I see that there's a, a need in the church. If I don't see a need, well, I'll just pocket it for myself. I have needs. No, that's not right. It is to be a part of worship. In New Testament times, the Jewish synagogues would have funds that would be saved Distributed to the poor when needed. And New Testament Christians wouldn't have access to that. 
They wouldn't have access to those funds. And so Paul tells them, save and collect so that when I come, you'll have some to give. Many of you might subscribe to a special savings program for your children's education. Or you might put away a little bit every month for your retirement or whatever it might be. We plan for the future. And just like our church, we've been saving for many years because of the hope that someday we'll be able to use it for a facility or maybe some emergency might come up that is extenuating. Whatever it is, it is planned for the future. Next, giving is to be handled properly by the church. It is to be handled properly by the church. Verses 3 and 4. When delivering the offering, it is going to be sent, you see, Paul says, with letters by people who were approved. Those who were in charge of the finances were to be people who were godly, who were approved, who were recognized by their character. It means more to choose individuals who have godly character, who are responsible because they know the Lord. Not as important as to their financial background, whether they're good investors, whether or not professionals. What matters is their godly character. And these messengers were to carry letters, it says. Likely letters that would say who these were from and what it's for. And, and that way would bridge the gap between the Jew and the Gentile church. Break down any wall of hostility that might be between them. And if appropriate, Paul said he would accompany them as well. And for us today, the same principle applies. The same principle applies that those who handle the finances within the church ought to be reliable and faithful stewards. In our church, there's a finance committee. There's three of them that take care of the the books. And there's a check and balance between various committees that we have. And our pastoral staff is separated from all of that. As I mentioned to you, Unless there's some special thing, somebody says, oh, I want to give a car, whatever it might be, then we know. But aside from that, God has chosen and given to us godly individuals. Giving has always been a part of the life of the church, a church for God's purposes. It's an act of worship. It is to be a part of the worship. It is to be regular. It is to involve all as we even teach our children to give. It's to be planned, intentional, saved up according to God's blessing. As God gives to you, we give back to God a portion of what it means to be stewards. And that is what makes it easier many times. Some people find it hard. Maybe like Henry Ford. Find it hard sometimes to give as much as we would like. But it makes it easier when we recognize that everything belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Everything, including my life, belongs to the Lord. And in one sense, God has loaned. God has loaned us what we have. He's loaned to us time and energy. He's loaned to us our bodies. He's loaned to us our The children that we have. He's loaned to us the money that we have. How are we taking care of what God has given us as stewards over? In the book, God's Money Managers, Letting Go of What Isn't Mine, the author writes, Suppose you have an important package that needs to be sent to somebody who needs it. You take it to an overnight delivery service. What would you think? 
if instead of delivering the package, the driver took it home. Then when you confront him, he says, Well, if you didn't want me to keep it, why'd you give it to me in the first place? You'd say that package doesn't belong to you. Your job is to deliver it to the person who needs it. And he writes, Just because God puts his money in our hands doesn't mean he intends for us to keep it. Just because God places his money in our hands doesn't mean that he intends for us to keep it. We sometimes worry about God supplying our needs if we were to be too generous or give away too much. But Hudson Taylor, a missionary, well-known missionary, said, When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never lack God's supply. We give to God according to how God has blessed us. We give to God in a way according to His Word. And when we do so, we give some of our own selfishness away, don't we? There's a great blessing to giving. As it says, as Paul writes, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's bow together. Father, in gratitude we come, knowing, O Father, that you are the one who gives us more than we deserve. We woke up this morning, O God, with life and breath, the ability to walk, the ability to work. Whether or not we have a job, O God, you are the one who provides. And so, Father, we look to you and trust in you. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to have a generous heart towards you, to give to those who we come across who are in need to give to others through the abundance of what you have given to us. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to give as an act of worship, that, Father, we might be blessed and find that there is freedom in our giving, freedom for our souls. Father, for you have called us to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name.